0: Hello, and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. In part one of this two-part series on post-exertion symptom exacerbation, Dr. Todd Davenport explained what post-exertion symptom exacerbation is what it feels like, and how to test and monitor it. If you haven't had a chance to listen in yet, I highly recommend you jump back one episode in your JOSPT Insights feed and check it out. Last week's episode is an excellent primer for today as we dive into pacing, the less is more approach to managing post-exertion symptom exacerbation that's going to challenge you to think differently about how you prescribe exercise and what the goals of therapy are for people who are living with post-exertion symptom exacerbation. I started by asking Dr. Davenport to explain what a pacing approach looks like. Okay, here's the episode. Todd, let's move on to talking about this idea of pacing. There's a lot of controversy and a lot of discussion around this, the graded exercise program can you talk a bit about pacing, what it is, and bring in this idea of the energy envelope?
1: As we go back to the credit card analogy, I'm so fond of analogies that people get tired of them, but we'll go back to the credit card analogy. And if you have a higher interest rate credit card, the best thing to do is to try and avoid using it as much as you can or to be judicious when you use it. And so ultimately, that is the foundation for pacing. Now, we also know that the aerobic energy system seems unreliable in people with post-exertional symptom exacerbation because they have an early onset of anaerobic metabolism, especially on the second day of a two-day cardiopulmonary exercise test. So we know that there is activity-dependent reduction in the ability to engage in oxidative metabolism. We use this information to try and identify, at least on an exercise test, or we can calculate it, where a patient starts to use anaerobic metabolism towards that ventilatory anaerobic threshold, and we calculate the heart rate at which that happens. We can then set a heart rate monitor to either observe or if the training zones on the heart rate monitor are low enough to beep when we exceed that level of exertion. So it gives people real-time feedback on how they're doing and what they need to do next. And that ultimately we're trying to avoid running up that high interest rate credit card.
0: So just to be clear here, this is an approach where someone would wear a heart rate monitor with this setting on all day. It's not just something that you put on when you feel like you're going to go to the gym to do some sort of structured exercise program that you or I are privileged to go and engage in, but this is day-to-day activity sufficient to push them over into that sort of red zone, so to
1: speak. Absolutely. And it's a good point. So there's an element of sort of training that goes along with this. People learn what it feels like to be at or over your ventilatory anaerobic threshold, and they learn which activities are most likely to push it. It's not feasible to stay under that ventilatory anaerobic threshold all the time. So I do like to point out that there is some budgeting here. Like you have to use that high interest rate credit card sometimes. There are maybe necessities or unavoidable circumstances that require to use that card. It's just you don't want to redline that card all the time, run up the balance and then have forever to pay down that balance. And so similarly with a pacing program, we're trying to conserve energy for that rainy day or for that unpredictable activity or for that... One thing that you know is coming that you need to kind of save up for as much as you can and that you're going to pay for, but that maybe you can minimize the impact.
0: Todd, can we talk a little bit about the PACE trial? Because I want to make a really clear distinction between the pacing approach that we're talking about as an approach to managing the symptoms and the PACE trial, which I'm sure some of the listeners will have heard about. And that certainly is quite a controversial piece of research.
1: In general, the UK PACE trial did not address pacing the way we're talking about it. The UK PACE trial assessed the effectiveness of three different interventions, including a graded exercise approach. And by graded exercise, we mean progressive exercise that was outside of the control of the participants to modify based on their symptoms. So they had sort of a set amount of activity increase that was sort of imposed by the study design. We know based on reanalysis of the data, based on analysis of the dropout rates, that really the graded exercise approach was no more effective than standard medical care or if the effectiveness was clinically marginal. And so it's really, it's gratifying to see a lot of the evidence syntheses and clinical guidelines starting to incorporate other approaches that are a little more consistent with uh, staying uh, within your capacity instead of trying to extend the capacity of a system that is impaired in its ability to respond.
0: So let's come back to pacing the approach, the broad approach. How do you progress that? So starting from the beginning, setting up some alerts to say, look, I'm monitoring my heart rate and I'm keeping my heart rate and my energy system within that energy envelope that's appropriate for me. How do you start to progress that? Can you?
1: So our experience has been less about progression and more about maximizing quality of life. We know that the aerobic energy system is impaired. We don't pretend that a pacing approach will address the underlying pathophysiology. We also know that graded exercise in the sense that we might exercise someone else who's fatigued from another etiology doesn't work. (laughs) So the short answer to your question of how do you extend is carefully. (laughs) So... So we start with a long period of getting to know the post-exertional symptoms. Everyone's pattern is different. Everyone's onset latencies are different. Everyone's symptom experience is different. Everyone's functional disablement is different. You know, the responsiveness is different. Some people, if you start a pacing program within two or three weeks, things start to clear up and be a little better towards a baseline that's more functional and manageable, more predictable daily energy, not doing more, but feeling more human. Uh, some people, it's months, years of this, and so when it comes to do you progress, the answer is, of course, it depends. And so w- once we've identified, the patient starts to feel like they can they can extend. We we use the same process as we do for pacing to introduce very gentle short term exercises. We're not going to yoga. <laughs> yoga is hard, but stretching programs in supine. Moving your legs and supine. Uh, A lot of the abdominal exercises that we started, specific abdominal exercises we started going away from to treat low back pain, are actually really helpful because they're exercise that doesn't tend to flare up post exertional symptom exacerbation. We tend to use a lot of diaphragmatic breathing. It tends to stimulate the parasympathetic nervous system, which has a beneficial effect on autonomic cardiac neural control, allows people to pay back that oxygen debt. So it's a lot of breathing, stretching, mild arm and leg movements, usually in supine where the work of the heart is less progressing than to more reclined positions, progressing to standing. Trying to keep, again, heart rates below threshold, or if we exceed threshold, that we don't end up with uh, more post-exertional symptoms later. We think about progression of exercise, not in terms of promoting a system response. We're trying to avoid a symptom response. I think that's a really key distinction to make. We should not prescribe exercise to the exclusion of daily activities. I worked once with a lady who just lived for her run. Uh, She loved to hike. She loved to run. Uh, She would just crash. So she would have those post-exertional symptoms be flared up and she would go to bed for the rest of the day. And then she would get up in the morning and she would run and hike again. And then she would crash. Again, she was exercising to the exclusion of other daily activities. She wasn't able to work. She wasn't able to engage in other activities of self-care and of sort of just run-of-the-mill stuff you do around your house to to kind of make sure there's food in the house and so forth. She wasn't able to do any of that stuff. She just lived for her her hike and her run. And we want to avoid that because people will do what we ask them to do. We are the exercise experts. People identify physical therapists, musculoskeletal uh, physical therapists, physical therapy assistants as people who know their stuff when it comes to exercise. And conversely, I've had people who have flared themselves up with exercise break out in a cold sweat when they heard they're going to see me because (laughs) I'm a PT (laughs) and they're going to get worse. But when we talk about extending, we're really not talking about causing a system adaptation as much as we're trying to avoid symptoms and maximize quality of life.
0: And I think for many of us, that's a challenging mindset to change because we've worked within that paradigm, whether it's strength training or training the aerobic system, you know, you need to push the system into debt to then get benefits. But I think we're talking about quite the opposite here.
1: It is absolutely a condition that breaks the rules and it really challenges our sense of professional identity. So when I first start talking with folks about this, the first question is, well, can't we exercise them a little bit? Of course, the answer is no. I mean, the data is clear. We really shouldn't. And then the, the question, too, is payment. How do we show that our patients are making, quote, unquote, progress towards some kind of, quote, unquote, functional goal? Because our payers have now been trained that if we push the system into some kind of debt, get it to compensate or get it to adapt, that then improves someone's participation in the labor market. It improves someone's, uh, reduces someone's dependence on the social welfare state. And so there's all of this that kind of comes into play as well, that that we get paid based on these functional outcomes. And it's really hard to get people to pivot and start thinking about increasing quality of life when sometimes the paycheck to the individual practitioner often depends on people pushing into debt and, and trying to promote adaptation that just won't happen
0: Todd, let's talk a bit about prognosis and I want to take a lot of care here because prognosis in the typical sense that we as PTs talk about it and think about it is often getting into the realm of ableism and I want to try to take care to avoid that. What does the future look like for folks who are living with post-exertional symptom exacerbation? And if, if I'm a PT who is trying to support someone and care for someone with this challenging condition, how do I sort of communicate what the future might look like for someone?
1: It's a good question, and I really admire how you framed it, because we really do have an ingrained sense of expectation uh, regarding what normal looks like. It's a common question that people would like to know if they ever will return to their old baseline function. And we know from some of the prognostic work in ME that that answer is about 3 to 5% of people will return. So the vast majority of people do not return to their pre-illness level of function. It's a tough stat. And and we don't know about long COVID. We have a longer history with, I think, ME. But when I hear post-exertional symptom exacerbation, I think about the commonality between the two conditions. I start to apply what we already know to long COVID. My hunch is that we may be catching people through better clinician education, awareness campaigns like this. Uh, so that we don't normalize post-exertional symptom exacerbation and and make it worse because people don't know to seek treatment or become stigmatized so they won't so my my optimism is that we'll do better than 3 to 6% of people returning to their pre-morbid level of functioning but the, the simple answer is that I I don't know I'm encouraged also by the research focus and dollars that have gone to understand the pathophysiology of long COVID, even as I'm aware of the idea that it may be displacing attention and resources away from other conditions that also share post-exertial symptom exacerbation and post-exertial malaise. And so there are some promising research hypotheses. It's unclear to me right now whether those research hypotheses are specific to long COVID. Or they might, gen- they might generalize well to the other long conditions, long mono, long Lyme, long, uh, uh, long enterovirus, and so forth. I'm just not sure yet, but it's, it's a source of optimism that I have. We can be involved because, again, going back to believing patients, finding credibility in symptoms, that's a really powerful basis to establish phenotypes, Because one of the things that we know from these conditions that all seem to share post-exertional symptom exacerbation as a feature is that they're very heterogeneous in presentation. And it's very possible that the people who have profound fatigue with cognitive dysfunction may present differently than people who have profound fatigue and heart rate dysfunction uh, or profound fatigue and viral symptoms. So the the need to subtype is there and we can help with that. We can help with functional symptomatic phenotyping that really might help to lend more validity to approaches uh, looking into the pathophysiology of long COVID and other long conditions.
0: Todd, as we wrap up, what are the three things that you would really like to see musculoskeletal rehabilitation clinicians do or say? or think to support people who are living with post-exertional symptom exacerbation or post-exertional malaise?
1: I would say above all, listen for the symptoms and signs. Be aware and compassionate enough to ask someone how they're doing and be receptive to feedback that it's not going well. Find credibility in unusual, fantastic, far out symptoms that may be happening to somebody somebody who may color in an entire body chart and be sitting across from you. And in the course of a session, it just looks like they're no longer paying attention to you because they're starting to crash. So that's the first piece. I would say the second piece is don't be afraid to change how you do things. Post-exertional symptom exacerbation requires a less is more approach. We have conditioned ourselves and our payers and, you know, our advocates in government to a more is more approach. More is more has the potential to cause harm in this case. I think this also extends to how we do things in our clinics. Our clinic may turn out to be a virtual clinic for many people. Just the process of getting to an appointment, parking, sitting in the waiting room, interacting with the front office staff, filling out paperwork, we've already crashed people. We've lost them. So by the time we get to our evaluation, they're done. The opportunity to help has already come and gone. But for the most part, you can treat people with post-exertional symptom exacerbation very well using the computer and also using the phone for people who have a hard time focusing on screens. You got generally 20 minutes with people. And so it needs to be a fruitful 20 minutes. Check in with people. Make sure that you're not overdoing work with your patient. Just the last piece is remembering that quality of life is important. We spend a lot of time pushing capacity and we should in a lot of patients. I think a lot of the calls that we underdose patients, that we don't follow sound exercise principles, all of that is very relevant. And I'm not arguing against that at all. I do think that in this particular population, with this particular set of signs and symptoms, we have a a situation where just load it, is not helpful. And we need to think that quality of life is paramount. And so in that wrapping up into those concepts I just discussed of listening to patients, finding credibility in their stories and using features of subjective examination as our outcome measures becomes important.
0: And Todd, we will link to JOSPT blog posts that you and colleagues have put together. And I want to thank you again for that terrific information. What other resources would you point folks to who are looking for more information after today's chat?
1: A lot of good information from Physios for ME. There is a Facebook group, PTOT for ME. They're all clinicians uh, living with ME. Long COVID Physio, for which I'm an unpaid education co-chair, has some fantastic resources, including some new videos that are oriented to patients, but really digestible by clinicians as well. The World Physiotherapies Briefing Paper number 9, which involves a description of best practices and rehabilitation for post-COVID condition. And then also, finally, the WorkWell Foundation has a whole host of podcasts, recorded lectures, one-page fact sheets, tip sheets for patients uh, that also are eminently digestible by clinicians. There's
0: a great community online who are active and sharing lots of information. So I'd encourage folks to follow accounts on social media like Long COVID Physio, get involved with World Physiotherapy. There's a ton of great resources out there. So let's start to work together as a community to curate those resources and to help promote the good ones that you've already mentioned here. Dr. Todd Davenport, thank you for liberating us to think about this less is more approach. It's a really important message to get across. And if folks take one message from today, I hope that that's one of them. So thanks for joining me on JOSPT Insights.
1: Thanks for having me and thanks for the listeners making it through this podcast. I appreciate it.